this is this is kind of stupid, but I had a lot of fun writing it. So, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, and fans of the Almighty God all around the world, or at least around Clyde, Alberta, this morning we are going to witness the most eagerly awaited battle in the history of our belief system for the heavyweight championship of the faith. Are you ready? Yeah. In one corner, housed in temples and tabernacles and church buildings across the planet, buffeted by chanting priests and charming pastors and chastising prophets alike, clothed resplendently in robes and collars, fueled by lamb's blood and communion cups and baptismal waters and burning incense, weighing in at a hefty three billion devotees across the globe, we have the reigning champion, organized religion. And in the other corner, housed in places of praise and grief and charity, buffeted by small and common folk of every race, nationality, and background, clothed in humility, compassion, sacrifice, and thanksgiving, fueled by the indwelling presence of the living Holy Spirit, weighing in at a... Well, actually, numbers are very uncertain, at least until the final bell of judgment rings. But we have the upstart underdog, personal and communal relationship with Jesus. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Today, we re-examine two battling re-words, both of which competing for superiority in the minds and hearts of faithful Christians everywhere. It's the most wildly anticipated cage match of our time, and of all time, the battle between religion and relationship. So, ladies and gentlemen, believers of all ages, I ask you, are you ready to rumble? Okay, enough of that. <laughs> that was really fun to write. But if God's people are known as Israel, literally the Israelites in the Old Testament, and figuratively as the new Israel in the New Testament, and if Israel means to wrestle with God, then we are engaged in this wrestling match, whether we like it or not. And as participants in faith, God's people have always been confronted with these two fierce combatants, religion and relationship. People in Israel people in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, and people across the globe to which the gospel has spread, all people encounter the God revealed in Scripture, oh, sorry, all people who have encountered the God revealed in Scripture have had to come to terms with this battle. Do they relate to the Almighty through ceremonies, sacraments, traditions, and beliefs of religion, or through a personal and communal relationship with the big guy himself? Perhaps you've never considered the difference, and that's fine. But we're going to jump into the ring with both of these rewords and re-examine them through the lens of scripture and personal experience. We'll find, I hope, that religion and relationship are very different things indeed, but hopefully also find that they are not necessarily antagonistic to each other. They're very different things, they're very different ways to relate to God, but that doesn't mean they're enemies, even though they're in the ring together. Now, right off the beginning, let me acknowledge something. You are very smart people. All of you. You're very smart people. And as very smart people, you will astutely predict that the answer as to who will win this battle is something like professional wrestling. It's predetermined. We already know who's going to win this battle. You know that I'm going to declare relationship superior to religion. Every second sermon that I preach has some element of that, that relationship is greater than religion. So it's not a secret who's going to win this battle. It was obvious even in my description of the two combatants. Fancy things versus, you know, things like sacrifice and humility and service. Those are, it's clear who's going to win. But even though the answer is predetermined, I'm hopeful 
that we can re-examine the connection between the two in a new way. So, <clears throat> kind of like the first of this series was was a big picture revelation is a big picture thing. It's not a specific concept. This is a big picture thing too. And we'll begin by re-examining the reigning champion, which is religion. And I call it the reigning champion because religiousness, and yes, that is a word. <laughs> Spell check didn't autocorrect me, so it must be a word. Religiousness is the default setting for almost every person who comes to faith. That was true in both the Old and New Testament times, and it's true of humans today. And it was true... I'm sure, of each of you when you first came to know about Jesus. Religion is the default setting because religion is the necessary default setting, as we'll talk about later. There are many hundreds, probably thousands, of religious systems across the globe, from remote tribal religions to Christianity's enormous monotheistic cousins that, that have the same source, Abraham, and that's um, Islam and Judaism to smaller offshoot Christian religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, to major Eastern religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Baha'i, Shinto, and Zoroastrianism. Those are the big 12 that Wikipedia told me. Um, I confess I know absolutely nothing about at least three of those. Like, don't know a thing about them, don't know in what part of the world they worship like that, don't know what their beliefs is. At least three of them I know nothing about. And then I know next to nothing about at least four of them. And then I know woefully little about even the biggest two, Hinduism and Buddhism. Talking about Eastern religions. I'm, I'm woefully unqualified to give a sermon on religion. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, these are all incredibly diverse religious systems. They all sh look very differently, but they all share various similarities as religions. A religion is a set of worldviews concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, why it exists, what it's for, um, how it happened, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies. So that's gods, goddesses, that sort of thing. That's what dictionary.com tells me. It involves an organized and formalized set of beliefs. It involves ritual observances and moral codes, it may or may not include sanctified places, sacred texts, and ordained leadership, and it always, almost always includes supernatural, transcendental, or spiritual elements. If it involves any of those things, and if people follow them in groups larger than just Dale and me, then it's a religion. So that's what a religion is, and Christianity is one of the most dominant organized religions on earth, includes all of these elements that I've just mentioned that you see behind me here. Even though it's fractured into hundreds and again maybe thousands of diverse subsystems, traditions, and denominations within it, even though Christianity has many, many branches, they, they all kind of come together. They all have the same origin. The big three are Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism. And Protestantism, even though it's 500 years old, is definitely the new kid on the block. It's within Protestantism, of which we are a small part. I'm, I'm sure you know that, but maybe you don't. Um, we are a Protestant church. And it's within Protestantism that most of the denominational divides arise. None of these three, Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Protestantism, none of those three like each other very much, as I found out when I attended an Orthodox church a couple months ago, and they pointed out how we Protestants don't know what we're talking about. And then there's a bunch of Protestants who will do that right back. That's definitely a two-way street. But none of these three like each other very much, which is one of the chief criticisms of religion in general, right? That they just can't get along. 
it causes if it causes this much division and this much animosity when they're all supposedly worshiping the same god then how can that god be real how can that god be love when all of his followers are so divided and so have so much animosity towards each other how can religion be true when there's all these people claiming they're the right ones and it's the same basic religion those are fair questions those are tough questions that i wrestle with as well um it's scathing and it's dismissive, but it's fair. Especially when the guy that we're all committing ourselves to, Jesus, prays exactly one thing on behalf of future generations of kingdom followers in the latter chapters of John. And that thing that Jesus prays for all who would come after him is unity. Unity for his glory. So it kind of doesn't make sense that there's all this divide in the church. So that's one of the legitimate reasons why religion gets a bad name, and that's divisiveness. And I hate division. I hate disunity very much. I hate it with my coworkers. I hate it in my family. I hate it in the church. I hate, I'm not afraid of conflict. I'm not afraid to deal with conflict, but I hate conflict. When my girls fight, as soon as they start snapping at each other, I just, my shoulders tense up and I need to stop it right now. And sometimes that means creating more conflict to end their conflict. But I just need needed to stop because I, I hate division. But with that being said, I want to make one foundational statement that I believe about our particular corner of the global religious landscape, Christianity. And that foundational statement is that I am not a religious pluralist. Pluralist means many, belief in many. I hear all the time from people, well, you know, all religions are saying the same thing. So they all basically lead to the same place. I, that's pluralism, believing that all religions lead to God and to salvation. And I, I don't believe that, not, not for a second. I don't believe that makes people good or bad or loved or unloved by God. I just don't believe that any religion leads to the same place as Christianity does. I don't. I believe there is an exclusivity to Jesus, that he makes exclusive claims about who he is. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And all Christianity is to lead to Jesus. So there's, there's exclusivity to what Jesus states about himself. By no other name are we saved but the name of Jesus. If it doesn't include Jesus, it doesn't contain absolute truth. Even if it contains some truth, all, there's truth everywhere all over the world. But if it doesn't include Jesus, it's not absolute truth. And sometimes, even if it does include Jesus, it doesn't have truth. You can probably think of a lot of faith practices and a lot of people who you've met who use the name of Jesus and have nothing to do with Jesus. So, I am not in charge of the judgment, thankfully. Thankfully, there is a God of forgiveness and grace who is in charge of that. But my understanding of Christianity is that it's true because it leads to Jesus. So, I'm not a pluralist. I, I don't believe that anything can get, you to, to, can get you to salvation. But having said that, although I'm no pluralist, I am definitely an ecumenist. Ecumenicalism is the promotion of Christian unity within the varying branches of Christianity. From Orthodoxy and Catholicism, Protestantism, ecumenicalism is the bringing together of that, the laying aside of differences for the sake of unity. And I'm all about that. That's very different from pluralism. I value that very highly. Again, what does Christ pray for? Unity. So that's a little journey into the religious perspective of Chris Lance. There's exclusivity to Christianity, but there's inclusivity within Christianity's many forms, is what I believe. But religion gets a bad rap, and a lot of it is earned. 
However, a lot of it just makes for easy excuses for people to disengage from any type of formalized belief system. A lot of time when people dismiss religion, it's because they don't want to commit. I've known many, many people like that in my relatively brief experience with faith. A lot of people just dismiss religion because religion will mean they need to change some things about themselves. They'll need to commit to something beyond themselves. And nobody in the Western world is predisposed to giving up their autonomy. Nobody likes in the Western world to have their freedom restricted. Nobody likes having other people tell them what to do and what to believe. No one in the Western world is predisposed towards giving up autonomy, giving up their freedom. We're all looking out for number one. We're all very independent and very self-serving, and those are the virtues of our day and age. So religion can be a tough sell. And so you hear people say things like, I'm just not a very religious person, or I'm more spiritual than religious, whatever that means. I have no idea what that means. Or going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. And that's my personal favorite because I've used that statement before. But all of these statements are meant to downplay the importance of formalized religion. And as we'll see, that's often necessary. Lots of times we do need to undermine people's religiousness. Uh, So there's nothing wrong with that. But more often than not, all of those are just excuses. It sounds like a failure to commit. It sounds like a spiritual cop-out. The equivalent of eating only dessert, filling up on icing and and pastry without ever getting vegetables and protein in you. Because it may feel good having Jesus without religion, whatever that looks like. It may feel good, but there's no nourishment. There's no long-term health. And in the long run, you will suffer if there isn't some aspect of religion to your faith. So I have no desire to dismiss the importance of religion entirely. In fact, it doesn't take long flipping through the pages of scripture to see that religion plays a major role in following and understanding God. From halfway through Exodus, Exodus, starting in Exodus 20, that's the Ten Commandments. So from about here to about here, all of that is just religious instruction, basically. There's some stories thrown in, talking donkeys, that kind of thing. But basically everything here, and then a lot of the content subsequently, all of it is just religious instruction. It, it, it's content that, that is taken up with direct instruction for religious procedures. Everything from what constitutes an acceptable offering to whether or not you can eat a bat. Everything from instructions for menstruation and blueprints for the tabernacle. The exact amount of gold to use for an incense lamp and the proper treatment of immigrants, how the priests are to wrap their turbans, and how to punish idolaters. Guidelines for everything from slavery, manslaughter, misbehaving children, sexuality. There's all kinds of stuff in those pages. And you're probably familiar with a lot of it. Plus, most important, the most important thing of all, the repeated grave warning for all of Israel to avoid cooking a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know why that's so important to the writers of the law, but it's in there a whole bunch of times. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk (laughs) so i don't know if you're considering having that for lunch today maybe reconsider it but it's all in there all of that's in there and much much more it's a religious structure that accounts for the most minute details of ethics diet wardrobe and building plans for holy things all the way up 
to the instructions for major religious practices like sacrifices, feasts, and Sabbaths, as well as major moral codes governing justice, worship, and orderly society. The law covers tiny little details you would never consider and big picture, huge moral, judicial, religious systems. The law covers a broad spectrum of things, which makes sense because God had called his people out of Egypt to make them his holy people. He formed them out of nothing. So it makes sense that he would give them a code, that he would give them a way to follow and and obey him. They were to be a shining light to the dark, idolatrous world around them. And to be that shining light, they needed to know how to shine. So God gives them the law for that purpose. This religious structure was intended to shape them into his intended image. They already bear his image, as all people do. But their lives didn't look anything like that image they were intended to have. And so the law is intended to shape them back into that image. It's intended to give boundaries and expressions for living a life worthy of their sacred call as as God's people. Every detail was designed for holiness. That's what we forget. Because we look at the law and there's a lot of really obscure stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that's hard to read, frankly. I hate reading the law. There's a lot of stuff in there that just doesn't make any sense compared to the nature of God as I understand it in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've read the law, but there's some brutal stuff in there. But all of it was designed for holiness. Many of these rules and regulations, they sound hopelessly outdated, even ridiculous, some 4,000 years after they came down from Sinai. God's revelations, as we talked about in the Revelation sermon, they come in a context. They come in a social, cultural context. So it makes sense that a lot of it's going to sound really obsolete to us. Of course it is. We live in a completely, completely different social and cultural context than they do. But there is purpose to everything God commands. And the overall pattern is for God to bless his people with the healthiest, holy life that brings glory to him. That's the purpose of the law. If that means abstaining from bacon and abstaining from carnal knowledge of the slave three-tenths down, and abstaining from bowing to graven images of Molech, well, the Israelites were just going to have to trust him that his way is the best way, as Junior Asparagus once sang on VeggieTales. God's way is the best way, and we will follow him. That was their job, to trust and to follow and obey. But here's the frustrating part of all this religious structure, of all this law, all of this religious organization. As wide-ranging and bizarrely specific as the law can get, it's also completely subjective and open to interpretation. Jewish people, the Jewish tradition of kibitzing, of arguing over the law, is a long stand, it's a 4,000-year-old tradition of getting together and arguing over the finer points, the finer details of the law. It's all part of the call to wrestle, which is what their name means, Israelites, to wrestle. And that wrestling means arguing over the finer points, the finer details of the law. But it also makes religion unstable and combustible when the law is this subjective and there's this many interpretations. Even a big picture things like what it means to be welcoming to immigrants. You go down to the States, you go to three different churches, you're going to get three completely different understandings of of how that looks. Some of them are harsh, some of them are very accepting, and some of them are very median. It seems that was that's true now. That was just as true then, especially the, the religious situation into which Jesus was born. This, this combustible environment of different interpretations of the law was very alive in the time of Jesus. As far as I can understand, there were four major religious sects in Roman-occupied Palestine at the turn of the first millennium, and all four were as different 
and as disagreeable as Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism is today. There were the very familiar Pharisees and Sadducees, which you don't want to be because they're not fair, you see, and they're so sad, you see, as the song will tell us. These two suborders of Judaism held all the cultural and political and, yes, religious power in Jesus' day. Sadducees and Pharisees. I forget which. I think the, the Sadducees were more numerous, but the Pharisees were more powerful, although I might have that backwards. And like Catholics and Protestants today, they hated each other. They were essentially the same group. We treat them as they're the same. Pharisees and Sadducees, 2,000 years later, we, we lumped them completely together, right? But in those days, they were very different sects of religion. Um, but let's not forget there were also the Essenes, which was a monkish group of Jews who retreated to caves to study, kind of like monks would be for the next 1,500 years after. They would retreat from the world to study the scripture and preserve purity and holiness. There was also the Zealots on the other far end of the religious spectrum, Zealots like Simon the Zealot, who was an apostle. And Zealots, they, they sought military might to overthrow the Romans and usher in the coming of the Messiah. Throw in the common folk who were most likely none of those four and probably some blend of them. Throw in the common folk, throw in the God-fearing Gentile dabblers, throw in the apostates who accepted Roman Caesar worship, and you've got quite a gumbo, quite a recipe for religious turmoil. From one shared law came a widely diverse set of interpretations, then and now. Religion has that habit, a tendency to divide, since humans are imperfect and humans are proud and humans are prone to argue with one another. We think we've got it figured out. And that guy, even though he believes nine out of ten of the same things as us, because that one-tenth is totally different, then we got to fight him and maybe kill him. But that's not the worst part about religion. That Even that divisiveness is not the worst part of religion. God can still be glorified despite a difference of opinion on the minutia of his commands. As in ancient Palestine, some churches today are power-driven, like the Sadducees. Others are more intellectual, like the Pharisees. Some are more provocatively fiery, like the Zealots. And others are more low-key, like the Essenes. A Pentecostal religious background is very different from a Mennonite religious background, which is very different from a Roman Catholic religious background, which is very different from a Clyde Christian Bible Church religious background, whatever that looks like. Well, it looks like you. And they're all very different. All have strengths, all have weaknesses, and all have the potential to lead to a life that honors Jesus as Lord. So while division is a problem with religion, it is not the problem with religion. So what is the problem with religion? Well, I haven't really cracked the Bible yet in this sermon, so maybe now's the time. As you might expect, the prophets had a lot to say about religious practices in a nation that was constantly rebelling against and rejecting their God. We're going to turn to one of my favorite minor prophets, probably my favorite minor prophet, and that's Amos, a guy named Amos. And he had a lot to say about Israel's corrupt religiousness. First, a little background for context. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he lived and worked and prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel around 760 to 750 B.C at a time when Israel was experiencing a resurgence of prosperity and political might. They were once again militarily dominant. They were once again fabulously wealthy and privileged. And if that sounds like a good thing, then clearly you haven't paid much attention to the pattern of God's people throughout the Old Testament and the rest of history. Because, as always happens in times of plenty, Israel's wealthy elite grew idolatrous, extravagant, and comfortable. 
They twisted justice for their own gain at the expense of the poor and vulnerable. They were, to quote the writers of my NIV study Bible, politically secure and spiritually smug, which is a really great phrase. A really Well, a really damning phrase, but a really great phrase. They grew ever fatter off the small people that they exploited to gain off of. Because of this, as Amos prophesied, judgment will come in the form that we explored the past couple of weeks. In about 40 years after Amos would come exile. The Assyrians would come and, and wipe out the Israelites and, and take them away. But amazingly, in the time of Amos, despite all their perversions of justice, all their insincere worship, Israel was still very engaged in religious practices, sacrifices, offerings, feasts, and celebrations at the temple by the priests. They were still very much engaged in that whole process. And here's what God had to say about that. This is Amos 5, 21 to 24 and 8, 10. It says, I hate, and then God doubles down. He doesn't just say, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, like a never-failing stream. And then in chapter 8, he says, I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. That, that's pretty brutal. And there's other, Amos isn't the only one. Amos is just, to me, he captured it the best. It's throughout, the, it's in the Psalms, the prophets. I hate your offerings and sacrifices. I hate your feasts. I hate your singing. I, I can't stand it. It is a, a disgusting stench to me. Get away from me with all that garbage, which is a really shocking thing. But a wealthy, privileged, comfortable Israel grows spiritually complacent. They get self-satisfied and they get proud and they begin to pervert justice. And justice is always of capital importance to God. In fact, this injustice, this perversion of justice is the thing that Amos is condemning, that they trample the poor for their own gain, the definition of injustice. And yet they maintain the facade of religiosity. They feel like if they go through the motions, the empty rituals, the half-hearted praise, then God will have no, cho- God will have no choice but to continue blessing them. But is that how that works? It is not how that works. He hates, no, he despises their religiousness. They are a foul, rotten stench to him. They might as well have brought garbage to the altar and burnt that for God rather than their bulls and goats. Get your hypocritical songs out of my ears, he said. They sound like fingers dragging across blackboards or whatever the 2000 BC equivalent of a blackboard is. Why? Why such strong language? Why does God hate the very things he commands the Israelites to do? Because this is the major problem with religion. Israel was a corrupt and filthy people, and all their perfunctory performative religiousness betrayed the corruption that filled their hearts. They treated religion like a get-out-of-jail-free card. They could do whatever they want as long as they throw throw a calf on the altar, then they're fine. They thought that if they went through their motions, they were covered. God would have to bless them. But Amos reveals to them in powerful language the truth about religion. And the truth is this. If it doesn't affect the heart... If it doesn't affect how you treat people and how you love your God, then it is worthless. It's worse than if you did nothing at all. Being overly religious makes us self-reliant. It makes us feel safe and secure in God's good books. 
We can know all the rituals, all the ceremonies, all the right things to do, all the right ways to live, all the rules to follow, but still fall woefully short of God's will. Israel missed the point of being God's people. It's, the point isn't about blood and temples and priests and incense. The point is relationships. It's about our relationship with God and our relationships with the people around us. God is saying to his people then and now, today to you and me, get out of here with your fancy songs and your plastic juice cups and your baptism tanks and your 10% offerings. Get out of here with that. Get out of here with your well-worded prayers and your well-rehearsed sermons and your well-baked poppy seed cakes. Well, actually, don't go anywhere. with Those can stay. But, but get out of here with all your empty, self-serving, meaningless religion. If you neglect the relationships. If you neglect the relationships, I don't want any of the rest of this nonsense. It's not nonsense if the relationship's there. But you know what I mean. For Amos, the religion was punishable because God's people refused justice for those most in need of it. They neglected their relationships to the poor in this case. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. If that sounds familiar, as Dennis said, it was quoted by one of the greatest heroes to me and to many, many, many millions of people, one of the greatest heroes for truth and justice and genuine religion of our time, and that's Martin Luther King Jr. America, the most religious nation of the West, was ignoring justice based on the color of skin. They were, as it says in Amos, the fat cows of Samaria, growing ever more powerful and ever more um, secure off the injustice of others. If Israel was really following their God, they would worship him not with a sacrifice of blood, but a sacrifice of love for the benefit of those in need. They wouldn't just worship him with obedience to the easy laws of customs and rituals. And it's very easy to just bring a sheep to some guy in a fancy dress to slaughter. That's very easy to do if you think that's all you need to do. He didn't just want them to worship him with obedience to easy laws of ritual and custom, but with the difficult laws of compassion and honesty and justice. If Canadians really followed God, if their religion was worth anything at all, they would do the same. So that's a lot of negative to religion. You might think if religion makes us divisive and self-serving and comfortable, shouldn't we all be declaring that we're not very religious? Shouldn't we all be running at the first sight of organized religion? If it's structured and formalized and guides me to somebody's definition of proper thinking and behavior, shouldn't I abandon it completely? No. Vehemently, adamantly, no. Because while religion isn't the point of following God, it has a point. It has a purpose. Religion is an important part of our faith experience. It is the scaffolding upon which the real purpose can be built. And what is the real purpose of our faith? relationships. That rebellion and rejection that we looked at in the beginning of our series, it undid most of what God intended his people to look like and how he intended them to live. It broke every relationship. It broke the relationship of me to my God. It broke the relationship between me and you. It broke and continues to break, I should say, the relationship between me and creation. And it breaks the relationship between me and myself, my fundamental understanding of who I am. All of that, all of those Crucial relationships are shattered by what we call sin, the pride and selfishness and brokenness of sin. By ourselves, those relationships cannot be fixed. The whole story of the Bible is God rescuing and redeeming and restoring those relationships through the presence of love. And where is love experienced? 
in relationship. God is so into relationships that he somehow has his own little inward relational triangle that we call the Trinity. The nature of God is one of relationship, of love. And everything Jesus did was relational. He surrounded himself with followers from many of those diverse religious backgrounds I underlined before, and all of them were equally inept at first, and then grew to understand. Every time he healed or freed someone, he always did so in a relational matter. Resurrecting the dead son of a widow wasn't just, hey, it's nice to have your son back. He's saving that woman from poverty. That relationship redeems that woman. When he would heal lepers, he wasn't just healing them physically. He was healing them by making them acceptable to society again. He was making them able to be accepted by the people around them. It's a relational thing. When he would uh, restore dignity to prostitutes and tax collectors, he wasn't just saying, hey, I love you. He's saying, and you all better love them as well as I do. When he would chastise his followers for their inability to trust him, where do we find trust? Where do we experience trust? Only in relationships. So all of everything Jesus did was for the purpose of relationship. He taught of faith in the context of father-child relationships. Unless you're like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. He was later described as the bridegroom and the church, the bride, marital relationship. He taught of prodigals being reconciled to their parents, of sick people seeking the help of doctors, of servants pleasing their heavenly master. Those are all relationships that we are familiar with. And he taught that the greatest of all commandments, the most crucially important religious teaching is what? Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That's relationship. All of the prophets in the law can be summarized in this way. Love God and love your neighbor. Be in relationship, upwards and outwards. And who does Jesus condemn? He saves his most scathing condemnations, not for the prostitutes and tax collectors and common sinners of the world. He saves his condemnation for religious people who through their religiousness create barriers in relationship between God and his people, who put up all these hurdles you need to jump that they decide you need to jump in order to be right with God. That's who Jesus condemns. Those are the whitewashed tombs, those brood of vipers. Not the sinners, but the saints who make sinners feel more sinful who increase their sinfulness. Everything about Jesus is relational. He was born a human child to a young, inexperienced, impoverished family. And he died calling out for his father just after he handed off his best friend or his mother to the care of his best friend. Relationship all over the place, beginning and end. His first miracle was bringing wine to a wedding party, for goodness sakes. What's more relationship building than being the guy who brings the good wine to the party? Everything Jesus did was for the purpose of establishing and deepening relationships between the people and their God. Every healing, every miracle, every teaching, every word, everything he did, everything from the manger in Bethlehem to the cross on Calvary to the ascension at Bethany, everything he did demonstrated that God wants to have a relationship with us, his people. Not a relationship of, you better do good or else I'll crush you. The same kind of relationship as a father to a child, a husband to a wife a good boss to a good employee. That kind of relationship. A personal relationship with you and a communal relationship with us. And those are equally important. Faith is not just a personal choice, ever. It's a communal invitation. It's all about relationship because what is relationship? Relationship is about faith 
and not just us to God, but us to each other. Relationship is about faith, trust, truth, intimacy, appreciation, and love. There's probably more, but that's a good start. And so our purpose in being Christian is to have the closest possible loving relationship with Jesus and the closest possible loving relationship with others for the glory of Jesus. That's it. Relationship, relationship, relationship. I don't know if any, did anybody watch Ron McLean's apology last night on what used to be Coach's Corner? There's the big controversy with Don Cherry. I watched Ron McLean's apology and I thought it was really genuine and really heartfelt. He's a guy that I admire for for a lot of reasons. And I wrote this part of his apology down. I, I rewound it about 35 times and typed it down. It says, he said this one, and by one he means this controversy with Don Cherry's bigotry. This one plunged deeply into our hearts, right? You know why? Because it's about relationships. Biggest thing, it's about relationships. Don's and mine, coach's corner and yours, yours and Don's. It's certainly about hockey, the teammates, the bridge building that hockey represents. It's about life in Canada. I'm writing, I'm actively writing my sermon about relationships when I hear him say this. He says, biggest thing, it's about relationships. Amen, Ron. Preach the gospel, Ron. Biggest thing, it's about relationships. For Don Cherry, hockey was religion. But he got fired when he neglected relationships. And all those relationships that Ron McLean mentioned, us to Coach's Corner, I mean, this is all really superficial, but uh, Don to himself, us to Don, all those relationships he mentioned, they were all fractured. They, they all got thrown out and they all were jeopardized because Don forgot that relationship is more important than religion. If you neglect relationship, Ron McLean would tell you, and Amos the prophet would tell you, and Jesus Christ himself would tell you, that if you neglect relationship, then the religion is meaningless and void. So that's the knockout blow in the great wrestling match between religion and relationship. And again, we might feel like religion is worthless. And again, I say to you, no, religion has a purpose. It's not our only purpose, but it has a purpose. If the purpose is to have loving relationships with God and neighbor, then religion is the scaffolding that helps us make sense of those relationships. Blueprints are cold and lifeless things until somebody who loves the job brings the building to life. The same is true with religion. Religion is like the blueprints. It takes someone like each of you and all, and all of us together to step forward and build something out of those blueprints. Something beautiful, made with patience and focus and determination and love. To build a faith from the blueprints of religion. Religion is the scaffolding. It frames our views on virtue, evil, blessing, judgment, pleasure, pain, life and death. All the things we experience are viewed through the lens of, of, of religion. Um, whether or not we should eat a bat or a pig, all, even tiny little things like that are, for, are part of the scaffolding. Religion is a shared tradition that's bigger than any of us and which offers support in the process of building our personal and communal faith. But it's not the building itself. It shows what the building can look like, but it's not the building itself. Relationships are the building. Religion comes with traps, creating division and disunity, feeling self-satisfied and proud, getting distracted by the details and ignoring relationships. Those are all the traps of religion. But we cannot just toss out religion. It's customs and traditions. It's stories and histories. It's expansive view and it's guidance beyond ourselves. All of it supports and structures our relationships with fellow fallen humans and with a God who is beyond anything we could feel or understand. So no, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. But 
If you want to know how to make a car run more efficiently, you have to get it into the garage and check under the hood. And religion offers the space and the worldview to do so. It also happens to surround us with fellow mechanics who are also working on their cars at the same time. And there's a great benefit to that as well. Religion helps make sense of our relationship with God and others. And religion, truly pure and faultless religion, as it says in James 1, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, religion is important. Righteousness comes when it's justice bringing, peacemaking, and love offering. When it's relational. True religion is always relational. It's not just cu- these customs. I'm, I look forward to communion every week. It's a religious practice, but it means something for my relationship to Jesus. I'm going to close by kind of fleshing that out just a little bit, I, talking about myself a little bit, my own wrestling with God. When I first came to know Jesus, I was in it purely for the religion. It was all about religion. My cousin told me about hell, and it sounded pretty awful. So I, I, he told me all the steps I needed to take to avoid that fate. There was no word about relationships at that point. It was all go to church, say your prayers, read your Bible, be good. It was all religion. As a young kid, I started coming here to ABC, to Sunday school, to PYPA, to youth group, to camps, learning and growing and getting comfortable with religion. I'm thankful for all of that. And many of you were absolutely central figures in my burgeoning religious understanding. I looked forward to, as I mentioned, I looked forward to communion every Sunday. My baptism at age 18 was a very special day for me. I learned how to pray, how to understand scripture. All of that was important religious knowledge for me. The the scaffolding, the framework was, was being put in place. But none of that is what saved me or continues to save me. My friends in the church showed me encouragement and correction and joy. As a kid, my church, that's you guys, my church showed me patience and support and instruction. My college showed me servant leadership and knowledge that transforms into wisdom, which is always greater than than knowledge. My wife shows me unconditional love and forgiveness and understanding. And as an adult, my church, that's you guys, still show me patience and support and instruction as we learn and grow and make mistakes together. When my emotional capacity was severely diminished in a time of burnout and depression, you had my back. When I am confused or ignorant or proud, I look to the role models around me here in this building and in my friend group. Um, I look to you people, my church, my friends, and I see Jesus' humility and compassion and goodness, and I am drawn back into the faith. In my weaknesses, you are stronger, but he is strongest. And in my strengths, you are my celebration, and it's for his glory. Slowly but surely, over my 25 years of faith and counting, religion got pinned to the mat by the unassuming power that is relationship, both a personal relationship with God directly through the Holy Spirit enabled by Jesus, and there I included all three of the relational aspects of of God in one sentence. It's a personal relationship enabled by God, but it's also through my relationship with God as experienced in community with you and other people I love in the kingdom of God and the world at large, as well as other people that I maybe don't love as much as I should in the, the kingdom and the world as large. Relationship wins. It's not religion versus relationship. They are not necessarily enemies. 
Sure, relationship is supreme, but religion is not inherently evil. It's not the bad guy. It has a purpose, and its purpose is to support that which is truly, crucially important. Loving God, loving each other. Wrestling with God and grappling with the people around us. In other words, relationships. Relationships are the heavyweight championship of the faith. Or heavyweight champion of the faith. So Clyde Christian Bible Church, let's get ready to relationship. Yeah, that's a good closing line. Let's pray. God, you are good, and we know your goodness through relationship. Thank you for your love, your patience, your kindness to us. And I pray that we would take that love, that patience, that forgiveness and kindness, all those things you give us and share them to the world around us and to the people around us. It's all about relationship. But Jesus, thank you for this religion that we get to step into. Thank you for the traditions, the customs, the sacred places and the sacred events. Thank you for all these things that help structure our faith and and give it vision and direction and guidance. Even more than that, I thank you for these people who give us direction and vision and guidance. We love you, Jesus. We want to love you more. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable that. We want to love one another more. We want to love the world around us more too. Thank you for relationships. They are a beautiful privilege. Uh, Help us to always treat them with the priority they deserve. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If the purpose is to have loving relationships with God and neighbor, then religion is the scaffolding that helps us make sense of those relationships. Are you ready to rumble? Okay, enough of that. (laughs) 